Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Road to Recovery podcast. This podcast is a platform for education, discussion, and conversations on mental health. I'm your host, Amira Shah, and in this podcast, you'll get to know more about the therapeutic process, insight into life from the perspective of the psyche, and also join me in exploring current issues with other practitioners. I specialize in grief, but I'm always interested in learning about the human experience of the mind, heart, and spirit. So join me on this journey of in-depth learning about ourselves and the world we live in. everyone and welcome back to Science of the Soul. Today I have with me Sharon Stern. Sharon is a clinical psychologist. She works with complex trauma and she has a private practice in Sydney. Hi Sharon, thanks for joining me today. Hi Amira, thanks for having me. So Sharon, you work a lot in um, complex trauma and we started talking recently and you have a passion for multiplicity or parts work. And it's also something I dabble in with, with my trauma work. So do you want to share with us what your thoughts are, what your, how you conceptualize multiplicity and how you see that helping people? Yeah, for sure. Um, Okay, so it's not really a concept, I think, that I think it's a concept that we are very familiar with, but that we're also very unfamiliar with. So we treat each other like we're one whole person. So if I was saying to you, hey, do you want to go and see a movie tonight? I would just ask you, Amira, do you want to go and see a movie tonight? I wouldn't say, is there a part of you that wants to go and see a movie tonight with me, right? Like, so we just, we talk to each other like we're one whole person. Mm. And also, if you look at the DSM, like, you know, and, and all of the categories, all the diagnostic categories treat people like they're one whole person. So except for the category of dissociative identity disorder, which is about multiplicity, right? We assume that everybody is just one person. Like, are you happy today? Or do you, you know, when we talk to people, it's just like, what do you think of the weather? What do you like? So we, we assume sort of a uniformity in people. And what, actu- what actually is the case, I think, is that people have lots of little selves there, there, there are lots of parts of them. We all have lots of parts of ourselves and we display different parts of ourselves in different situations and different contexts. So when I'm at work, I'm my work self. When I'm with my family, I'm a different self. I'm like, I'm, you know, when, when I'm with my friends, again, I'm a, yet a different self. So, so actually there are lots of different ways that we can present ourselves. And so we have a whole lot of different selves inside us. And actually, while I say that it's not something that we really consider in the way that we address each other, the way we, the way we think about each other, it kind of is too, because expressions like I'm in two minds are really common, you know, or I'm sitting on the fence with this, or, you know, part of me thinks this and part of me thinks that is there, you know, we do talk like that. 
or I'm having a bit of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde moment, you know, and in the literature, there would be lots of examples, you know, like Dorian Gray is one way out in the world, but then he has this portrait up in the, in the attic. So in the literature, and if we reference, you know, like the way that we've thought in the past over time and across culture and throughout the arts, we can see that people are very much multifaceted, but the way that we treat each other in a day-to-day sense, it's kind of like we're, you know, we expect each other to be consistent unitary and one whole person all the time but actually we're really multifaceted Mm. yeah so what are you saying is that it's not really a concept that you work you used to work through or with but it's really more the phenomenon of how we present as humans yeah I guess so but and also like the thing is that once you start seeing each other seeing people as having lots of different parts you get a lot more leverage you know it's 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 a relief mm. it's a relief to kind of accept and understand our own ambiguity mm. because then ah let i mean we can kind of relieve some pressure in a way you know so and it helps people accept themselves a little bit more so you know, if I sort of think, let, let's say I want to, you know, part of, let's say I'm kind of thinking about a changing career, for instance. I'm not, but, or maybe let's pick something simpler. I'm thinking about, we'll stick with the movie thing. I'm mm. thinking about going to the movies tonight. Um, I really want to, I want to, I want to go, my friend says, you want to go to the movies tonight. Part of me wants to go because um because I uh a part of me doesn't want to upset my friend right she really wants to go to the movies another part of me um you know maybe wants to go and 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 then another part of me really doesn't um if I, if I am kind of like under this pressure to, if I'm just like one person, I can either say yes or no. But if I'm sort of accepting all the different parts of myself, it just gives access. I don't know that this movie thing is a very good example, but it helps. So for instance, I'll give you a, a clinical example from work. So for instance, um, I would have one person who um, was really suicidal, right? And um, we'd make a, a contract, like a plan, and she would say, okay, I'm not going to kill myself. And what, I was making a contract with one whole person, right? This was before I knew that she had lots of parts of herself. Mm-hmm. So when I'm making a contract with one whole person, that one whole person would, would like feel like she had to present herself as one whole person to me. Mm-hmm. And she would say, okay, I'm not going to kill myself because she knew that was what I wanted. And she, like, part of her wanted that. But while we weren't talking about parts, all she could do was present herself as one whole person. Mm. And so we'd make a plan, we'd make a contract, and she'd say, okay, I'm not going to kill myself. But then she would attempt, like, that night. Mm. And then she'd send me a text, like, the next day and say, I'm so sorry, I'm so embarrassed. I really, you know, after all the work that we did and the agreement that we made, I can't believe that this happened. Mm. And it wasn't until I realised, okay, this is not one person 
there are parts here. You know, there's a part that wants to stay alive and, and do the right thing, you know, inverted commas, by, and please me and make a plan to stay alive. And there's another part of her that really wants to die and is really annoyed at me mm. for trying to kind mm. of corral her into staying alive. So that's a much clearer example than the movie's example. I don't know quite where I was going with that one. But you can see then, like, once we started talking about parts, yeah. then we kind of, we moved from there. Once I got it, it was like, oh, my God, this person has parts, right? Mm. There's a part of her that wants to stay alive. There's a part of her that wants to die. And while I keep treating her as one person, we're not going to get any clarity on what's really mm. going on inside her. Um, and so once we started kind of, like, really identifying and honing in on the suicidal part of her mm. as, you know, as a part of her that needed attention, it kind of gave space for her for that part of her to be able to have more airtime and speak up so she yeah. could be more honest, right, about the parts. Like there's a part of me that wants to please you and there's a part of me that wants to stay alive, but there's this part of me that really wants to die too. Mm. And it just made so much more space. Like there, it, was a, it was a relief. It was like releasing a pressure valve or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because um, I guess... When, when, when I meet clients and we decide to embark on some parts work, I guess how I start is by saying that the different parts of you and they have voices, they're things that need to be expressed. Um, mm. and, and by just assuming that, or not assuming, but I guess neglecting these parts and mm. they have to say, like, you can't, they cannot be fully actualized. And so while it is okay to normalize our incongruencies within ourselves, because, you know, we are human, we're complex beings. Um, we live for so long now, it's ridiculous how long we live. So, you know, compared to you know, like a hundred years ago. So I, I can just imagine like more parts of ourselves with, with different, um, I guess, cognitive backgrounds and all that and developments. It just keeps growing. And having, I guess, the part sometimes to just have have to have a bit of a conversation. Um, yeah, yeah. And and while while we can normalize incongruency, sometimes when the parts are in dire conflict, like what you just said with your client, mm. um, the voices just need they just need time, airtime, pretty much. Yeah. And yeah. it's interesting when you're also talking about this specific case, I'm just reminded of Greek mythology of Eros and Thanatos. Yeah, right. The will to live and the will to die is, um, I guess, the theory or the philosophy is that um, with every being that is alive, whether it's an ant or a human, there is a will to survive and the will to, to, to die because, and that starts and it's, it's like a paradox that happens at the same time, which is probably, and I think Freud might have touched on this as well, um, probably um, why we continue to smoke or drink and do damaging things because we feel like we, we're not going to live forever. You know, we also want to enjoy our lives. Like we will have mm. that cake um, and maybe two more slices after that. Um, yeah. And then there's another part that goes, you know, in the mornings, like, shit, I have to, I have to go for a run. <laughs> yeah. You know, that was, that was no bad mirror. No. <laughs> so I think, I think, accepting that that is the nature of humanity or mostly the nature of humanity um, mm. 
it's it is liberating it's liberating yeah that's so interesting like the a will the will to live and the will to die it's yeah it's it's interesting I would I mean and I wonder what Freud would say about it and if, it reminds me of the id ego and super ego as well like you know, the part of you that wants to go for a run in the morning is really not the same part of you that wanted to eat the cake the night before, right? Like, right. Yeah. Well, I think Freud was, I don't remember if Freud touched on it or he was an example of it or it was written in one of his last letters because you know how his daughter died and he basically died, He's he said, people say that he basically died from a broken heart because he never got over the death of his daughter Hmm. even through his theories of you know uh, catharsis catharsis um and and have move move through the grief and all that he had a slightly different approach different from Kubler-Ross but um with with even though he tried to live through his own psychological theories it didn't really work out for him because Hmm. he continued he had jaw cancer and he continued to to smoke his pipe um, relentlessly um, mm. while writing. And, and I think in some of his last letters, it, he would write to his dead daughter and just talked about how heartbroken he was that his heart was. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think he was looking forward to dying after the loss of his daughter. Yeah, wow. I did not know that about Freud. Mm. I actually went to see him, his uh, last home in London. Oh, did you? Yeah, because they had to flee from Vienna, right? And yeah. because he was one of the, you know, greats of the greats, um, they, they brought all his furniture and all that to, to London. And his um, his last house was it's a bit of a museum. Um, they've kept it in as intact as possible. Like, so his, mm-hmm. his counseling room or his, his therapy room um is it looks like an anthrop- anthropologist's office uh-huh. it's got persian rugs it's got couches you know i remember seeing mein kampf on his bookshelf <laughs> oh interesting yeah yeah and, yeah and and he's got all sorts of artifacts from like um ancient egypt and He's got a lot of Persian artifacts as well and influences. You can see his glasses sitting on the table, everything. Mm. Um, I, th- I want to say it's oak, but I'm not 100% mm. sure. Uh, but it has a completely different vibe. It's not at all sterile. It's yeah, not- wow. How interesting. Yeah, yeah. I was reading, actually, I was reading uh, Norman Deutsch's book. Have you read that? No. It's, it's called The Brain That Changes Itself, and he wrote it in 2010, and it's been reprinted several times. But it's actually, what, when it came out in 2010, I think it was super, like, kind of revolutionary, a whole lot of new ideas. And now it's much more accepted, what he's talking about. And he's talking about neuroplasticity. Um, but he said, he talks about Freud and, um, you know, some really interesting stuff about Freud and, and some of the theories he had and ideas that weren't yet that weren't really um, made public so much as part of his uh, thesis or his thinking but apparently he like he was very interested in the brain and in and in um, neuropsychology 
before, well before he got into, he only got into psychoanalysis to try to make some money. He actually wanted to be a neuro um, neurophysicist or something, and but he had to support his family or something like that. So he got into into psychoanalysis that way. But he had a whole lot of, and I can't remember what they were now. He had a whole lot of like uh, theories about the brain that turn out now to be, you know, really accurate. Um, so yeah, any really interesting stuff. So he was quite a brilliant guy. I guess we all know that, but yeah, um, yeah. No matter what he put himself into, he became he was destined for greatness. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Like one of these people that probably you know you hear about Jung and you hear about Freud and you hear about like you know their greatness. They probably also had moments of like doing things that really no therapist should do I'm sure too mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> mm. but let's not go there <laughs> no 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 so what about the inner critic what part uh, yeah 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 okay so with the back to so multiplicity with multiplicity um so we're thinking about multiplicity we're thinking about um, you know, these different parts of ourselves that are pe- performing different functions, right? So the part of you that, if it's okay to go with your cake and running mm-hmm. example, yeah. so the part of you that ate cake, like wanted to enjoy something delicious in that moment, and maybe it was soothing, maybe it was enjoyable, maybe it was playful and fun. Okay, so there's a part of you that was like having fun and playing in that moment, or you were soothing yourself. Mm-hmm. And then the next morning, there was the part of you like that maybe wanted to achieve something. Mm. Um, so each part is, is performing a certain function. And so if we look at the parts of ourselves as that they develop and ask ourselves, well, why do we have parts? Mm. Why, why are we multiplicitous? Mm-hmm. It's, it's in the service of survival. So as we develop, we, um, we have like, you know, these, these different influences on our lives combined with our temperament, combined with our physiology and cultural influences, family influences and epigenetics and everything. And, that, and that's what influences our tendencies. Are we going to have a part of ourselves that just like binges way too much Netflix and really no part of ourselves that kind of gets really motivated and, and goes for a run? Or are we going to have like, the other about the other side of it like way too much of the running and striving and working and working and working and no part of ourselves that kind of Mm. can really take a load off and like ideally I guess we want a bit of a balance Mm. and all these influences so our temperament our personality our environment and especially growing up and in those early years when we're not to five if we have like a good enough inverted commas as Winnicott said childhood Mm-hmm. then um, we shouldn't get too imbalanced with all the different parts of ourselves and we shouldn't have too much fragmentation between the parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like we should basically have ownership all of all the different parts of myself of ourselves so that we can say, oh, yeah, there's a part of me that really wants to go to the movie with you tonight, um, but I'm not, like, as much as I want to please you, I really can't, um, I'm way too tired, let's make another plan and I can kind of sit with that instead of, like, 
going even though I really don't want to yeah. or just totally ignoring the phone, the friend in you know like so I can kind of own everything and hold it and take responsibility for it yeah. so if I had a good enough childhood I can do that there's not too much fragmentation I can hold all the parts of myself and reflect on them but if I didn't have a good enough childhood then there'll be you know much more fragmentation much more splitting between the parts because they're they tend to operate in the service of survival for me and they learned to do that in the not to five years. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, no, it really does. And I very, I very much like what you said about ownership and, and responsibility. Um, yeah, I, I really, really like that. That Yeah, that made a few pennies drop because... If you watch Sybil, the movie, right? Yeah. And for, for our listeners that don't know what it's about, Sybil is a movie about, um, uh, it's a true, based on a true story about a woman with um, dissociative identity disorder. And she was raised um, in a very traumatic uh, way as a child because her mother was schizophrenic and her mother pretty much tortured her. And so she ended up, in uni having blackouts and apparently doing things she can't remember um, because she had 16 different personalities, all of different ages. Two of them are boys. Um, and, and that's generally the movie I, I kind of suggest clients and, and friends and people to watch um, um, just before embarking upon parts work or just as something that is just, uh, it's really insightful. And not to say that people that we're all like Sybil, but there's mm-hmm. there are elements there. But you know, with 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 the case of Sybil, there she was not in control of mm-hmm. her parts, and it's not only about being controlled. But I think, I think, yeah, I think you said it right. This is ownership, being responsible, and, and and recognizing that there are parts within us. Sometimes you know they're a bit imbalanced, and we just mm-hmm. need to recognize that and own that. Hey, you know, yes our physicality is the limitation we are one person you know we don't have multiple heads or multiple hands yeah and so it comes down to this one item one entity but this one entity is kind of managing a whole bunch of different entities and if it's a healthy situation you kind of let it flow you know ebbs and flows um some get more airtime sometimes but then you can balance it out with with the others as well Whereas if, like you said, if you don't have a, a strong childhood or if your developmental years are particularly challenging, then that becomes a problem. And why does that become a problem? Owning or being responsible of the different parts. Mm. So um, there's a continuum, I guess, of, um, no, we like let's look at the word realization, right? Like so dissociation and realization, right? Mm-hmm. So if something really, really scary is happening to you when you're a little three-year-old and your nervous system gets overwhelmed, you actually have to dissociate that experience. You can't realize what's happening to you because you'll just get completely overwhelmed and you won't you won't survive and you've got to find a way to survive like say you're a little you've got to find a way you know if you're a five-year-old or a seven-year-old you've got to find a way to get to school the next day and just keep going and keep living and eat a meal and you know do the next thing and the next thing and sometimes the only way that you can do that is you take the thing that happened to you 
and you compartmentalize it, you put it in a little box mm. and you don't allow yourself to realize what's going on. Mm. So to the degree that bad things happen, like if really, really scary, awful things happen to you when you're a kid, you're much more likely to have to have dissociated that thing mm. in order to continue. Because you don't have the autonomy or the, I guess, you're still a minor. You can't do very much. That's right. You're little. Like, what are you going to do? Like, you can, you, you've got some choices. You can negotiate with the perpetrators of the abuse. You can say, hey, you know, like, do you really think it's appropriate to be hitting a child in this way? But, you know, like, first of all, a five-year-old <laughs> doesn't have a complicated enough brain to be able to do that, you know, yeah. like a sophisticated enough brain. All they've got is right brain at that point. They don't have much left brain. So all they've got is like their imagination, their playfulness, mm. their feelings, their emotions. They don't have like the ability to rationalize and think yeah. through yet. And also they're tiny and they're entirely dependent on this on this caregiver yeah. for their entire survival. So what are they going to do? They can't safely negotiate, right? So the next one down from safely negotiating in terms of survival skills is fight, fight mm. and flight. So mm. where's this kid going to go? Like run away from home? I don't think so. Where are they going to go? Is this kid going to fight their caregiver? Mm, I don't like their chances, right? They're small. They're entirely dependent. Mm. That's not going to happen, all right? So then the next survival skill down, down the hierarchy, and uh, we're talking, when I'm saying hierarchy, I'm talking about sort of evolutionary hierarchy, Right. right? So the one down the bottom is freeze, right? Freeze, submit, surrender, And so most kids, that's really all they have available to them. And dissociation is right down there in that free space. Mm -hmm. And it's um, mediated by the dorsal vagus. Um, I won't go there because then I'll get all confused myself. But um, by the vagus nerve and it's a dorsal vagal complex. And it's kind of like what you see animals do. Yeah. When that you know when you, those the clips of goats playing dead, yes, oh, right? Um, exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that's what humans can do when they don't have any other options, and that's what little kids do. And dissociation, like floating above your body, um, this isn't happening to me. Denying it, that 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 has to happen for a lot of children. But that doesn't mean that means the trauma gets locked away somewhere in their body. And the part of them that's experiencing that, you know, the little five-year-old kid that's experiencing that trauma, um, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't mass magically dissolve or dissipate. It's it's locked away in that in that person's body, so that when they're adults, you know, and 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 the child will develop strategies, and that's where the inner critic comes in. Actually, the child will develop strategies in order to survive, mm. um, just in case those experiences keep happening right, to try to prevent those experiences from yeah. happening. And the inner critic is an important part of that because I can't remember who it was said, I think it might have been Ferenzi that said it's better to be a sinner in a world of saints than it is to be a saint in a world of sinners. So, you know, a little child that's going through terrible, terrible abuse would rather be the bad one because then at least they can do something mm. to change it. Like they can be good, try really hard to be good. Um, work hard, you know, be nice, be a good girl or, or a good boy or whatever. Um, if, and, and being the bad one helps helps motivate them. And also it's much better than their parents being the bad one because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that would be like way scary. Yeah. yeah. 
so then that's what the, that's the, I, I think that's, well, yeah, from, from everything that I've learned and read and heard, that's like the origin of the inner critic, right? That's the inner critic's origin story. Yeah. That's how we all get to be mean to ourselves. It's from something that happened in our childhood mm. where we kind of subconsciously decided I'm bad. I better be good. So this doesn't happen to me again. Yeah. So it's like a survival strategy. Yeah. So the, the inner critic is actually in service of survival. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to Science of the Soul. This is a short interruption to let you know that if you or someone you know are in need of more support, you can find me at Road to Recovery on my Facebook page, my Instagram, or my website at aroadtorecovery.org. I hope you've enjoyed listening so far, and now let's get back to the podcast. So do you think, okay, so I'll just summarize that a little bit. Um, yeah. So the the inner critic is a product of a discrepancy between power and psychotechnology as a child. So as a child, they don't have the psychotechnology to process or deal with, you know, the their plight um, being, yeah. being abused. Yeah. Um, due to, yeah. Also because of the power dynamics because they're really vulnerable. And as a result, um, depending, despite whatever uh, responses, flee, fly, flee, flight. <laughs> Freeze, fleeing, flighting. Whatever it is, um, through that, the inner critic is formed. And, it, and what are the, I guess, um, conditions for the inner critic to be reinforced through life? Yeah, so um, so generally I think, and this is sort of like just observations I guess I've gathered through, I couldn't tell you particularly what source, but um, so I think the inner critic sort of starts to form once we've got language. So once we've got our own language we can and, and the ability to refer to ourselves, so, um, you know, seeing ourselves as a separate entity, um, then we, we start to think about ourselves um, in response to others and in relationship with others so it gets formed and then so you know like it might start out as I'm a bad girl you know and it comes up with comes with feelings like it's connected with feelings all through our body and we develop this complex um, and then it gets reinforced right um, when you know like the next time something bad happens to us Let's say, you know, um, let's say we spill something on the floor accidentally when we're little kids and our mum is having a crappy day. She might be like, you know, doing the very best that she can, which parents generally are doing the very best that they can, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but she's had a really shitty day. She's stressed. The little kid knocks over a, a glass. It, it accidentally, it crashes on the floor. The mother makes a terrible face. Okay, and that's all that it takes. So then that child thinks, I'm a bad girl, right? Mm-hmm. And then the child kind of works really hard, you know, sorry, 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 I'm sorry I did that, mommy. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, um, in response to feeling like a bad girl, right? And the mom responds to that and says, oh, it's okay, you know, like, I'll let me help you clean it up. So that right there is the moment of reinforcement because the mom 
because the child's saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, then the, as if she were the bad one for accidentally knocking the glass over, right? Whereas it was actually just an accident. Like the child's like, I'm sorry, I'm so bad. I'm so naughty. I can't believe I knocked the glass over or whatever. Um, the mum, you know, is kind of like, it's okay, it's okay here, give me a hug or whatever. Um, I don't know, this is not a great example, but you get the drift. So like, Auden, let's say, let's say, um, a parent, let's say a child didn't have that. Let's say a child hadn't developed that complex of like, I'm so bad. Knocking a glass would, over would be like, you know, oh, whoopsie, you know, not a big deal. But in an environment where the child maybe had been punished before or the parents are always stressed and it's like, oh my God, the, you know, I can't take it or whatever. The child develops, like gets this sense of, oh, it's scary. It's threatening. I'm bad. If I'm bad, I can fix it. I say, sorry, I try to help. I make it better. And that's where we develop, like it gets reinforced. So we have this feeling of badness. And then if I say sorry and try really hard to be good, then, you know, mom will still love me and she'll look after me and I'll be safe. And I won't be kind of abandoned or left alone because children, you know, like the attachment drive is the mother of all drives, right? Like it's, it's a really important evolutionary drive. And a little child will do anything to maintain their attachment to their caregiver does that make sense <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really does. so if it was like yeah it does okay cool yeah because yeah. I just feel like I'm talking really really fast and I don't know if it's <laughs> making sense but yes <laughs> it does it does make sense so yeah you're what you're saying is that the inner critic gets reinforced through similar dramas that that are playing out in life um and and if if it happens in adulthood or adolescence it just keeps continuing and in that way the neurons that fire together uh wire it together um and yeah and the neuroplasticity is basically sabotaged in that area Yeah, well, I mean, and also because if we learn this, if we grow up in a slightly stressed out environment, it doesn't even have to be a really intensely abusive environment. It can mm. just be a slightly stressful environment. And if we're a little bit sensitive by temperament as well, in combination with that, we're on the lookout, we're on the lookout for threat stimuli, right? Yeah. And then, you know, like, so we're kind of like, oh my gosh, mom seems stressed today. And I know, you know, I better be careful. I better be good because last time she got really upset and it must have been my fault, you know, and and children will be primed from an evolutionary point of view to maintain that attachment um, with their caregiver. And so they will do what they can. They'll, their nervous system will recruit their body and recruit them in the service of maintaining attachment. And that way a child can stay attached to even an abusive perpetrator. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So yeah, they can stay attached. Yeah. Even to an abusive caregiver, I meant to say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For sure. And, and when I'm thinking about, I guess, all these, All these, I guess, psychological problems that can develop, um, which look, to be honest, are not really problems in a, in a way that it is not normal. It's it's pretty normal. Almost every other person goes through this at some point in their life. Um, 
the most powerful antidote in terms of integrating all all the pots, all the voices, um, you know, compassion, being compassionate um, in realizing that there are parts of yourself that require certain tenderness or some airtime or, you know, to to be free for a bit um, and to honor that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder where love comes in. Yeah, um, love. Yeah, look, absolutely. Gosh, love is a big, big concept, I guess. But I think, um, you know, for a lot of people, maybe they just haven't known it enough in childhood. And so I think where love comes in here is, um, well, let's think about therapy, right? And... In therapy, what you're wanting to do is, I think if a child has missed out on those not to five years, like those early formative years where they should be, you know, really delighted in by their parents, where the love from the parent is so, so intense, that parent is really, really preoccupied um, with that child, right? Mm -hmm. That's how it should be. And the parent should be attuned to that child enough. Like that parent ideally is well enough, Mm. um, isn't suffering from postnatal depression, isn't in terrible financial circumstances, isn't living in a war-torn country, Mm. isn't in an abusive relationship themselves, you know, is had good enough parents themselves, right? So we're talking about like a pretty privileged set of circumstances Mm. where a child has a parent who's able to be a good enough parent in that they're able to be attuned to that child Mm. and in that set of circumstances I mean a parent can love a child but not be able to give them the attunement that they really need in order to develop a self right and there's another big concept self right Mm. but um (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Oh my gosh, we're going to need like another podcast. Um, But when we, like when, what, in those not to five years, a child like ideally should develop a sense of I like, I don't like, um, what I think is, Mm -hmm. you know, I enjoy doing um, a bunch of things like that, that they just know to be true. Like they develop a sense of a point of an internal point of reference, an internal um, frame of reference that yeah. they can rely on like a gut instinct. And ideally a person can develop a self in childhood where it's like, you know, a self can kind of go, I definitely want to go to the movies tonight, or I definitely don't want to go to the movies tonight, or I definitely do want to go to the movies I don't want to go to the movies, but I don't want to upset my friend too. So I can make a plan with them to do something else. And I'm okay with that, right? Rather than this, oh, I should go because I don't want to upset her, but I don't really want to. Okay, I'll go, you know, like, and it all gets mushed together because the person's acting from a part of themselves that wants to please others. Yeah. Right. Instead, if you have this gut instinct, it's a reference point you can always come back to Mm. where you can kind of like know yourself and honor yourself, know what you feel, know what you think. And ultimately, I think that's, and, and love yourself, right? Mm. Um, um, ultimately, I think that's the goal of therapy. Mm. And it can take a long, long time or a shorter time. And I think a lot of that 
depends on the degree of severity of early childhood trauma. Mm. So if you had a little bit of that, like you had a little bit of mirroring and a little bit of kind of attunement from a parent, that can go a long way, mm. helping you develop a little bit of selfhood, right? Enough selfhood to come back to and kind of start to kind of go, yeah, do you know what? Like, I think I really want to just sit in the sun today. I don't want to clean the floor, mop the floor right now. I'm just going to sit in the sun. That's what I want to do. And that's what feels right to me right now, you know, instead of, but I've got to clean the floor. I've got to clean the floor because otherwise I'm really bad. You know, like, yeah. Um, there's simple little examples of how everyday multiplicity affects all of us. But if we did have that good enough childhood with enough attunement and enough attention, attention, if we were delighted in, if we if we were made to feel safe, mm-hmm. if, if our, to- our autonomy was respected, mm-hmm. if we got time to play, um, and if someone kind of reflected back for us what we were going through, our feelings and all of that, if we were lucky enough to get that in childhood from a parent who was consistent, yeah, a parent who could repair with us as well, you know, and say sorry when they needed to instead of blaming us for everything, yeah. right? Yeah you know, then we're really lucky. And that's the kind of love I think that helps you develop a self. And then whilst a therapist can never actually replace those, you know, that love from a parent, Mm -hmm. it's the task of therapy, I think, to help a person develop that self. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really like that. Yeah? Yeah, I really do. It's almost poetic how you put that together. Oh, I'm so glad because I feel like we've gone all sorts of places today. So I'm glad that things are starting to come together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's it's hard because there are still a lot of areas that we can talk about, but just, just about how love is, it's an antidote. It's, yeah. it, it's an antidote to a lot of suffering within the self and, amongst people I mean intrapsychically and interpersonally um mm. yes developing yeah no I guess being able to absorb through osmosis um from the parents in your early childhood <clears throat> and receive love is the best way to have an idea of what it is and to mm. cultivate that within yourself yeah and like, you know, some of us, us, you know, some of us are really lucky to have had that. Mm. Um, but otherwise, you know, because our brains are plastic, we can develop in ourselves that ability to, um, to be there for ourselves in the way that our parents once were. So that self that you develop, that self that maybe you were lucky enough to get in early childhood, you can develop in adulthood. Mm. And that's an ability to accept and hold all the different feeling spaces within ourselves and be there for ourselves Mm. and so actually I think love is conflict right so Mm. this is another whole podcast but (laughs) love is being able to hold the conflict conflicting emotions conflicting ideas and be okay with that Mm. oh I love that thank you Sharon look I know (laughs) I know that um we're out of time for today but I really really enjoyed our conversation around multiplicity um and attachment and love so thank you thank you so much for your time and hopefully in the near future we can chat again and we can explore other 
realms of psychology and philosophy. That sounds amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I feel really honored to have been here. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> the pleasure is all mine. Um, I'll catch you soon. Perfect. See ya. See ya.